So I want to talk a little bit about big transitions and increasing our stores of trust in the face of a big transition, which we're in, obviously. Uh, I think we're all used to uh, big personal transitions or ones that affect maybe a, a, our family or our workplace or our faith community. But we're, we're in a different kind of big transition because it's like society-wide, uh, even, even global in scope. Uh, the onset of quarantine in 2020 was certainly the biggest like society-level transition in my lifetime. Coming out of it is too, I suppose. Uh, Emily has a chapter in uh, Solus Jesus, A Theology of Resistance on the, on the Spirit. I think it's chapter five. And Emily talks about how societies don't undergo uh, undergo big structural changes without a massive infusion of energy of different of different kinds. I think Andrea Walrath uh, put Emily onto this, and there, there's some theory that it's uh, that it comes from. I don't know if maybe Andrea or Emily could put that in the chat. I can't recall it, but uh, COVID may well be such a massive infusion of energy with all sorts of effects, uh, big changes. Uh, in the workforce, possibly a huge infusions of cash, cash through uh, relief packages and other legislation that may come, changes in the way we do worship, work, education that may have a long-term effects on, on these things going into the future. Uh, COVID has increased society-wide attention to our great moral problems, racial justice, poverty, climate, things like that. The, the intensified cultural divide has brought some closer together and driven others further apart. It's something many of us feel it right, right in our families. Uh, for perhaps for most of us, it's it's a mix of like positive and and really scary things. A uh, whole lot of shaking going down. Uh, in times like this, I I like having I like having the companionship of the perspectives of ancient people who faced big transitions the kind that are found in sacred texts like our Hebrew Bible and our New Testament writings. So, so yes, there are big personal trans transitions uh, in, in these writings, but also massive society-level transitions, empires and kingdoms rising and falling, affecting people at a, at a very personal level. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament has this, has this theme, and late in the letter, it's chapter 12, there's a line that goes, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken remains. Uh, so before Jerry Lee Lewis and Mabel Smith, there was the author of the letter to the Hebrews who was actually quoting an earlier, uh, an earlier prophet, Haggai. So transitions are occasions for trepidation, anxiety, fear, in the same letter, uh, letter of Hebrews earlier, uh, fear of death is presented there as kind of like the mother of all fears from which we need to be freed. It's, it's as though the fear of death is like underlies all our lesser fears. Uh, and he would free those who by the fear of death all their lives were subject to bondage. So it's, it's not death itself, it's the fear of death, the apprehension in the face of death. Now, before I go further, I want to say, um, if you are in a painful or fresh grief, talking about death can be, um, it can either be helpful or it can be uh, really painful. 
Um, I'm going to mention some anecdotes and findings from near-death experiences research. It's nothing graphic, but I remember when I was in a fresh grief several years ago, someone gave me a book on, I don't know, like visions of the afterlife, and I was surprised at my reaction. I just wanted to throw it across the room. (laughs) So if, oh, oh, I'm, I'm in a more raw space than I thought, you know. So if you're in that place, practice good self-care and tune out for a while. One of the advantages of Zoom Church is you've got the volume control. We can all run our own soundboard in Zoom Church. So where were we? Transitions are occasions for fear, and many of our lesser fears are linked to fear of death, if not fear of physical death, at least the fear of significant loss. So in the Gospels, um, Jesus and the disciples go through some harrowing experiences with their Uh, survival is at stake. In Mark 4, our reading today that uh, Hope did for us, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, the the cool phrases in that were were lifted from the, um, my favorite uh, translation, um, uh, Sarah Rudin. Uh, In in Mark 4, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat when a sudden storm sweeps over them. Um, How bad a storm? Well, it says the waves fell down on them. So if you picture yourself in a boat, you know, it's not waves lapping over the, over the, whatever it is, the edge of the boat is called bowster. And I don't know, I don't know nothing about boats, but if the waves are falling down on you, that's, that's a big storm. Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. I think it's nighttime. Uh, The disciples are in panic mode and they wake him up. He calms the sea and then says to them, why such cowards? Don't you have any trust? By the way, you only get to talk like that to your friends if you have just done them a great favor. (laughs) Otherwise, be more sensitive in your remarks. Um, But here's what I notice in in this antidote, um, anecdote, and and that's this. The the antidote to fear in uh, in this little section isn't courage, but it's trust. That's the same thing in Mark chapter 5, the next chapter. Again, someone's dealing with the question of survival and underlying fear and really big transitions. And it's a synagogue ruler, and he rushes to Jesus, asking him to come tend to his sick daughter. Jesus goes with him. You know, they're on the outskirts of the village. Jesus and the entourage uh, head for the synagogue ruler's home. Messengers from the synagogue uh, ruler's home arrive to say, too late, your daughter's died, Um, don't bother the teacher. Uh, The crowd reacts, you know, in typical Middle Eastern fashion. There's just, you know, lots of of, uh, cacophony. But just then, Jesus and the synagogue ruler have a moment together, reported by Mark in the middle of the mayhem. And Jesus, I, I picture this as like an intimate moment, and uh, uh, Jesus saying this quietly, don't be afraid, only trust. Again, trust, not courage, is, uh, is shown here as the antidote to fear. So there's, there's an important difference, isn't there, between trust and courage. Courage is like a boxer or any athlete before a big contest, you know, jumping up and down, heavy metal in their earbuds, stealing themselves. Uh, courage is like the uh, ancient Irish warriors. I remember this from uh, Thomas Cahill book on how the Irish saved civilization, how in the time of St. Patrick, the 
Irish warriors were, would terrify their enemies by stripping naked, yelling in unison, and then rushing at their foes. Um, that's like stealing for the fight. Trust is very different um, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Trust is something we relax into. Not like the clenched fist, but more the open hand. More, more exhale than inhale. In AA, let go, let God is the trust mantra. Have you noticed that in your own experience, trust is often more powerful than courage in the face of a big transition? Uh, I now uh, pause for a book report. So at the height of the third COVID um, surge um, last year, I think it would have been like November, December, just before the amazingly effective Pfizer vaccine was announced, I, I was pretty nervous, um, AKA afraid. You already think about death more as you get older, and then you put something like uh, COVID on top of it. Yeah, wow. So I was thinking a lot about my old friend, Phyllis Tickle, who died in 2015. Phyllis was very trusting in the face of death ever since I'd known her. Um, she had a heart condition uh, that could have taken her at any time. Uh, it turns out that her trust was Yes, it was a fruit of her long-standing faith practices, but Phyllis traced it to a near-death experience that she had as a young woman. She had a severe reaction to a drug that shortly thereafter was taken off the market. I think her reaction to it is the thing that caused it to be taken off the market. So she, she was in the ER and her heart stopped. And she had the classic near-death experience, the tunnel, um, the light at the end of the tunnel, Though, you know, you can stay or you can go the whole, the whole nine yards. Uh, her husband, Sam, who was a doctor, was super skeptical about near-death experiences. It, and it was so tense between them that it just agreed not to talk about it uh, thereafter. So I'm thinking about Phyllis during this uh, pre-vaccine um, surge uh, back at the end of last year. And my brother-in-law tells me about a book he's reading after by Bruce Grayson, a doctor at U of M who became lead medical researcher on near-death experiences. So in the 1990s, uh, Christian Publishing got hold of some of the early research on near-death experiences and made a ton, of, a ton of money on some very lame books that spin the research into like Christian propaganda. I, I read one of those um, books and, and was not impressed. Uh, so I kind of had a, a thing about this whole thing. But between Phyllis, her experience, and my brother-in-law, and the non-religious perspective of Bruce Grayson's book, uh, and because I needed to nurture trust as an antidote to fear, um, I, was, I, was, uh, I was open to it. I got the book. Same time, I was watching Alone. Probably not a good series selection as on Netflix. You know, they drop people off, and they're alone in some wilderness place, season whatever. And it's all about getting enough food and storing the food successfully uh, in preparation for the Arctic winter. Um, last December, my trust was getting low and I needed to store up some uh, more trust in the face of one of life's unavoidables, death, which was on my mind. So Grayson founded the International Society of Near-Death Research, which follows clinical research protocols and isn't attached to any religious framework. 
So he has personally interviewed thousands of people who had near-death experiences and done it in like a qualitative research kind of organized way. Uh, and he says, uh, gathering evidence from many different sources, that in the general population, 10 to 20% who came close to death recall or report a near-death experience. And that uh, amounts to 5% of the population. So one out of 20 people have had one of these. So chances are you know someone who has had a near-death experience. Um, but he also says that many people don't like to talk about them. It's too intimate an experience. It's like outside the normal. It's considered weird in our culture. And, and when people tell the stories, they're often met with skepticism from their hearers. And that's just a horrible thing when you've had such a powerful experience. Um, by the way, prior religious orientation is not correlated to having a near-death experience. Um, how the experience is interpreted is affected by your pre-existing religious orientation, but having one or not isn't. And, and the research notes some common, not universal, but pretty common uh, features of near-death experiences. I'll list a few. Um, feeling outside the body, even seeing one's body from a distance and seeing it um, accurately. Going through a tunnel toward light, very common. Meeting loved ones who have died before, very common. Often encountering a divine figure, maybe Jesus or angels, or, or that is what's often shaped by your religious orientation beforehand. Uh, having the choice to go further in or return to the body. And then um, the research shows uh, certain long-term effects for people who've had one of these NDEs. Uh, increased altruism, compassion, gratitude, uh, focus on the present moment, and reduced fear of death. Sounds kind of me like a, like a trust cocktail. So the most intriguing part of the research is that the findings in some cases raise questions about the relationship between minds and brains. So this is an old debate. Um, is the mind simply a function of the physical brain, or is there a function of mind that transcends the physical brain? Uh, this is the question of like spirit, soul, all those religious words. Is there a non-physical intelligence? All the major world religions, um, you know, the experiences of indigenous peoples and tra traditional cultures would say, of course, uh, mind or non-physical forms of intelligence exist and they transcend the brain. Uh, so, so this is a really uh, key question. A small portion of near-death experiences, I think it's like 5%, uh, cannot be explained by the theory that mind is simply a function of the physical brain. You know, it could be there's all sorts of, you know, physical explanations for these phenomenon, though it's hard to understand why they would be so <laughs> similar across the board. Um, but sometimes people report access to information in a near-death experience they couldn't have access to by way of their physical brain, even if it was fully conscious. Um, like an example would be accurately recounting events or conversations that happen well beyond the reach of their senses, like several rooms down um, where there was no one who, who could have reported uh, the conversation or the events. Another category is uh, people having a near-death uh, experience 
and they meet a loved one who has in in real time actual fact just died after they lost consciousness and before they regained it and they had no way of knowing the person died sometimes they share this information when they when they come back and nobody in the family around them has yet heard the news that this loved one died let alone mentioned it while they were unconscious so that you know that uh, that's interesting well maybe one last thing if you could put um about near-death experiences and then i'll wrap up quick if you could put into words the feeling that people who have had near-death experiences report it would be something like the um, julian of norwich uh, prayer all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well that's from her book one it's actually one of the earliest books in the english language that we know of called revelations of divine love it, it was written by julian of norwich um, during a plague that wiped out a third of the population of europe uh, called the black death so hmm. wrapping up we live in so far as we know maybe like the only culture in human history that has tried to actively suppress or adopt a skeptical attitude toward unusual or mystical experiences of all kinds that's why all this stuff seems weird to us because because of the society we're in um, so people feel weird talking about these things and they tend to keep them to themselves except in certain pockets of the population uh, and though that in general is changing over the last 50 years or so uh, when we don't talk about our certain experiences we have fewer of them um, i noticed uh, uh, i'm doing therapy and, and lately in therapy, I've been uh, talking to my therapist about dreams that I have. And then he, you know, it's, it's kind of it's fascinating process. And I'm noticing that, wow, I'm just remembering my dreams so much. And I said, am I having more dreams or is talking about my dreams like uh, just making me focus on them more? He said, yeah, the latter. You've, you've always had lots of dreams, but you just, you know, they just kind of passed right out of your awareness because you weren't paying any attention to them. Now, the things we don't focus on for whatever reason just don't register with us. Um, you know, plus, you know, we're, we're in a sector of Christianity heavily influenced by the Protestant Reformation, Luther, Calvin, uh, back in the uh, 1600s. Uh, and for the first time in Christian history, um, that movement really developed like an allergy to spiritual experiences. And then in addition to that, like virtually outlawed or, or put an extra stigma on a whole set of kind of common spiritual experiences, like anything viewed as contact with with the dead, uh, things like getting a message from a lost loved one in a dream or or having a bird or a hawk show up as a sign of a lost loved one's presence or, or conveying some message or even like feeling totally connected to all living things so there's a whole set of like spiritual experiences that that were kind of stigmatized especially or prohibited as a result of the protestant reformation and again that's lifting but it, but it still affects us but we are all in a time of big transition um, moving out of quarantine into a new normal uh new it's probably going to be abnormal normal for a while. Maybe as big a transition as going into quarantine. Uh, not to mention all the 
personal transitions that have intensified um, in our in our you know individual circumstances because of COVID. So in, in such a time as this, fear is pretty easy to access. Um, so maybe it's time to increase our stores of trust. Maybe you resonate with my little book report and you want to check it out uh, after by Bruce Grayson, not Michael Grayson, Bruce Grayson. I sent an email out to people in, in, interested in my book group and I could put Michael Grayson, it's Bruce Grayson. Uh, maybe increasing a faith practice like meditation that promotes relaxation. Um, I think of phys um, re uh, relaxation is really like a physical, the physical feeling that is associated with trust. Uh, gratitude practices, we know, increase our stores of trust. Um, I was meeting with Emily last week uh, in person. It was awesome. <laughs> doing some, uh, we were doing some church planning. And a couple of times, Emily just said, like off the cuff, you know, I have a lot of hope for the future of our church. And I just noticed uh, every time Emily said that, I could feel my trust stores just expand a little bit. So nurturing hope, uh, expressing hope when you have hope can increase our trust stores. Um, like naming our fears with others and expressing our hopes with others. I think that's a really healthy combo, like in a friendship or any connection where you talk about meaningful things. Good practice. Name our fears and also express our hopes. Uh, named fears tend to lose their edge and expressed hope increases hope. And both of those increase our trust stores. Or maybe something else uh, may be shown to you uh, that paying attention to will increase trust. Just be attentive to that, I suggest. So it's like we're the synagogue ruler in the crowd of distressed people. We're worried about whatever we're worried about. And the divine spirit has a quiet message just for us, echoing what Jesus said to the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, only trust. So like I said, um, I think of um, physical relaxation as a physical form of trust. To me, trust feels like how I feel when, I, when I'm relaxing. So Diane is gonna lead us in a guided meditation to give us a taste of that trust feeling. So take it away, die, die. Okay. All right. Well, sit comfortably with your feet resting on the floor or a chair rung, if whatever is possible for you to feel grounded. Take a deep cleansing breath in through your nose and slowly blow it out through your mouth. Take another slow, deep breath in through your nose. Now slowly blow it out through your mouth. Return your breath to its natural pace. Now close your eyes and turn your attention to your body. Relax as best you can releasing any tension in your muscles. Do a quick scan of your body from your head down through your neck, your face, your neck, your shoulders, releasing muscles as you go down through your chest, 
your stomach, your hips, your legs down to your feet. Now, see if you can detect your heartbeat. If you can't feel it by just sitting quietly, try putting your fingers on your neck or your wrist to feel your pulse. Breathe with the rhythm of your heartbeat. In, two, three, four, five, six, out, two, three, four, five, six, in, two, three, four, five, six, out, two, three, four, five, six. Go at your own pace, but concentrate on slowing your heartbeat with each breath. Now recheck your body, release any leftover tension, open your eyes, and have a relaxed day.